Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. So you all know that we're going through the book of Romans, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And Rome was uh, an empire in the ancient world that's much like the United States today, a lot of wealth. Um, so it'd be like there, this is a letter being written to the church in Washington, D.C., except it would, it's not quite what it would be. It would be like a combination of Washington, D.C. and New York City. And we, we go through verse by verse, and this is our 31st sermon, and we're on chapter 6, um, which actually I think is going pretty fast. <laughs> um, and you remember what we've said about the first five chapters, and it is that um, the Apostle Paul has been writing... Christians who look around at the world around them and they say, people are so wicked. And then they stand there like this, you know. But me, you know, I'm righteous, you know. And so the church is always tempted to look at people who aren't in the church as dirty and them as clean, right? And the Apostle Paul says, no, you're, you're dirty actually. And it's always difficult to get us as Christians to realize that we are sinners. Okay? We. And so the Apostle Paul spends the first five chapters, which we're done with now, um, but I'm going to go back and remind us of what they were, and he spends the first five chapters saying, look, there's none righteous. There's not one righteous. No one's righteous. There's none righteous. There's not one righteous. There's no one righteous. There's not one. And the Jews, he says, you people are filthy. The Gentiles, he says, you people are filthy. It's an equal opportunity employer, the sinfulness of man. And it's because all of us died in Adam. The minute we acknowledge that Adam sinned against God, and that's corrupted us, then our lives become understandable to us. You remember that? Remember Pascal saying that until we understand the truth of Adam's sin, we don't understand ourselves. You remember he's a French mathematician and philosopher, and he says without this truth of our sinfulness in Adam, he says we don't understand ourselves, and this is true. We can't understand ourselves until we see our sinfulness. And that's we. That's not them. That's we. And so again and again and again, he hits them with their sinfulness, and he says, but God has sent his son to be an offering for our sin. And he has borne on himself the sins of us all. And if we look to him in faith, if we say to his father, Father, your son gave himself for me. He, he died for me. His blood has washed me. Very simple transaction. Then his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Adam's sin became our sin. Jesus' righteousness by faith becomes our righteousness. And so 
We're no longer under the law. We're no longer cringing. We're still with, disgusted with ourselves, but now our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. And when we, we sin, we say to him, uh, have mercy on me. It's no surprise now to us when we sin, right? And so the first five chapters are hitting over and over again. We're sinners and our only hope is Jesus. We're sinners and our only hope is Jesus. Don't be self-righteous. You're a sinner and your only hope is Jesus. Jews, your only hope is Jesus. Gentiles, your only hope is Jesus. At the end of chapter 5, that stops. Okay? And with chapter 6, he begins to say now, because you belong to Jesus, you said to the Father, forgive me for your son's sake. So now you belong to Jesus. You remember I used the illustration of being baptized. You go, you're dead to your sin in your former life and you're raised to newness of life. We have been dead to our former life. We're, we're raised to newness of life, okay? Now... He then says at the beginning of chapter 6, Now live what you are. Now live what you are. And remember I said he's moved from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. Now there'd be no hope to talk about us becoming more holy, more like Jesus, if we hadn't been justified. Because if we don't look to Jesus in faith, we don't have God's grace. We're not sons. And every time we try to do what's right, we're going to hit our head against a brick wall. But once we bow the knee to God through Jesus Christ, right, then we hear in our, in our hearts, our minds, our lips say it. We begin to pray, Abba, Father. We begin to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We begin to have the faith to declare that the Father Almighty is my daddy. Now, if you haven't used that language about your dad, don't worry about it. I did, okay? My father was tender, and so have faith for my relationship with my daddy, okay? And we begin to relate to God as our father. And we know that he understands our sin. Why? Why do we know our daddy understands our sin? Well, because our daddy's a sinner. <laughs> I mean, if there's one thing we all learn watching our daddies, it's that they're sinners, right? And then we will reproduce it with our own children. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so then we have hope for sanctification. We have hope that day by day we will become more holy. Not more moralistic. Not... You know, well, I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to do this. No, remember my mother saying, why do you want to stop smoking? You remember that, you know? And all of a sudden, I realized I wanted to stop smoking because I get embarrassed. <laughs> not because I wanted to protect the body that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not because I wanted to see God's power at work in me, but because it was so embarrassing to be in seminary and smoking. And then my mother says to me, when God 
deals with you about your smoking. Do you, I didn't tell you when I told you, you know, in that sermon where I talked about my smoking. Do you know when I finally stopped, although it's been an on-again, off-again relationship my whole life, but the longest I stopped was for 18 years. Do you know when that happened? It was the night my father died. And guess what? When he died, God completely took away my desire to smoke. And you'll see things like this in your life, where some habits that you've had for many years will go on and on and on, and then suddenly God takes it from you, just like that. That's the way lying was with me. I don't know why God chose to let me be done with lying, but one day I was done with it. I'm not saying I don't lie anymore. You know, I tell Mary Lee I love her all the time, you know. That's my wife. And I actually do love her, and that was a joke. I adore my wife. All right. No, now, I want to read the text because, remember, this is a pivotal point in the book of Romans. We're moving from what is true of us as Christians to what God commands us to do. We're moving from the indicative... Come on to the imperative. We're moving from what is true of us to what must be true of us, right? You know, think of it this way. A dad looks at his son and says, you are my son. That's Romans 1 through 5. And then he says, now be my son. And that's the rest of Romans. From the indicative, what is true, to the imperative, the commands, okay? All right, let's hear it. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its loss. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here this morning be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You see the word therefore. And so anytime you see the word therefore, you should think, What's coming, don't let sin reign, but you should also think what's past. Given this, the indicative, therefore this, the imperative. Many years ago, I was at a meeting, a national meeting of the Presbyterian Church in America, the General Assembly, and I ran into a friend who was an attorney. He was an elder, not a pastor. At the time, now he's a pastor. And we were talking, and he was talking about the sermons that he heard on the part of pastors in the PCA. And being a lawyer, this is how he put it. He said to me, I remember where it was, I remember when he said it. He said, okay, you ready? He said, along with the indicative, can we please have the imperative? I never heard that before. And I thought, that's a good way of putting it. Along with the goodies, can we please have the baddies? 
you know, along with the Twinkies, can we please have some meat? You know, along with the yeses, can we please have a few no's? Now, why would an attorney want that? Because he knows his own sinfulness. He knows that what he would like is to always be told that things are good, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, things are good, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, things are good. But he has a conscience, and his conscience knows that it needs exhortations. His conscience knows it needs commands. His conscience knows that he needs discipline. We all need discipline. And he's tired of having a pastor who does what? Who never disciplines him. Now, why would he be tired of having a pastor that never disciplines him? Oh, oh, oh. I don't know how I would preach without you women. Every time I preach, I process my sermons through you guys. And the reason is that no matter how much we don't like discipline, discipline is the way that we know we're loved. <laughs> you know? And so if I never said anything you didn't like, guess what? You might like me better, but you wouldn't trust me that I love you. And ultimately, if we have to choose between liking people or knowing they love us, most of us would choose to know people love us. That's what we'd choose. And so I've told you the story before of my geometry teacher in high school. And because I was relatively smart, as smartness goes, a way overrated trait. The tortoise and the hare. The hare always wins, right? But because I was relatively smart, I was able to never do any homework in high school. You know, I just never did any homework. If I had to give a speech in a speech class, I would hope I wasn't the first person to speak, you know? And uh, so I went into Mrs. McLean's geometry class, and... I got C's and D's, and I didn't mind it. I had no pride. I never aspired to be at the top of my class, <laughs> you know. And uh, Mrs. McLean had red hair. And Mrs. McLean decided that she knew my type. And man, did that woman take it to me. I don't remember what she said, but what I do remember is that immediately after she disciplined me, and it would have been character, <laughs> it wouldn't have been geometry, <laughs> you know. The minute she disciplined me, guess what? I fell in love with geometry. I mean, I really fell in love with it, and I got A's. Now, I didn't get A's in gym. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, but all of a sudden, I love Mrs. McLean, and so I worked hard to please her, and we go through Romans 1 to 5, and we see that when we were rebels against God, Jesus died for us, and our hearts love him. 
And guess what? Now Romans 6, we, we live to please him. <laughs> it's simple. It's very simple. You know what John Lennon said, right? I mean, there are a number of things John Lennon said. But one of them was what? Love, love, love. Boop, boop, boop. All we need is love. And actually, he's right. And so God, indicative, has sent his son who's died. He's paid for our sin. And we look at it and we go, unbelievable. We're baptized. We die to our sin. We're raised into newness of life. We're saved. That's what we call being saved. But then... We have love in our hearts, and that love is to motivate us to become like Jesus. You remember how I tell you that my favorite picture when I was a pastor in Wisconsin was a very frequent picture on farms. It was a picture of this little boy in bib overalls and his dad in bib overalls. And the little tyke is probably three years old, and he has a humongous bucket in his hand. And he's doing everything he can to carry the bucket. And he's the spitting image of his dad. Except his dad doesn't have a bucket. And you know that he wants to be like his dad. Well, that's the nature of the Christian life, is that we want to be like our father. But here's the problem. The problem is that we live in a body of death. And it's very difficult to be like God. And yet God commands us, you must be holy, for I am holy. And we hear that and we go, oh man, just yesterday, just yesterday is enough for me to want to die about my life, my sin. And it, we're not even talking about the things people see us do. We're talking about <laughs> what goes on in our noggins. The thoughts we have are horrendous. And so what happens is we get very discouraged as Christians. We want to please Daddy, our Father, our Heavenly Father. And yet we see that we never stop sinning. And contrary to Watchman Nee, this is the normal Christian life. Okay? And so the Apostle Paul at this point in the letter is very concerned that you and that the Roman Christians not be discouraged. Because that is the life of a Christian, is to be discouraged. You know, we've given our, our faith to Jesus, we pray to our Heavenly Father, and then, what happened, you know? I thought I was a Christian. Look at how I'm behaving. The Apostle Paul understands us. You remember how often I've said that the Apostle Paul loves us. He loves his readers. And so he's constantly declaring his solidarity with the people he's writing to. Remember how I talk about he uses the word we. You know, the first person, you know, we. And so he says here, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It's, it's interesting that probably of all the texts in Scripture, more ink on the part of really bright, 
pastors and, and seminary professors has been spilled over this text than any other one in Scripture in the last 20 to 30 years. And I'll get to that again in a few minutes. But right here, he says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And the commentators say, well, the issue is that, you know, he's trying to move the Christians to be more holy, to be less sinful. And so he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And then they say this, they say, but don't worry, it wasn't that sin was reigning in their mortal body. And I'm like, dude, are you serious? So the Apostle Paul says, don't, don't let something happen because it wasn't happening. I mean, it's stupid. We all know what the Apostle Paul means when he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Come on. Can we be big boys? You know, the Apostle Paul is talking to us about not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies because every morning when we get up, we begin to get discouraged with the absence of holiness in our lives. And when we go to bed at night, sometimes we wake up at night, and what do we think about? How holy we are? I've never had that problem at night. <laughs> you know? Well, that was, that was a day well completed, Tim. You know? Oh, my goodness. Now, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why does he say the word mortal? Well, because he's reminding us Remember what it says in, in, the, uh, in, in the prayer book, the Episcopal Anglican prayer book. It says, the graveside service says what? It says, in the midst of life, we live in death, and of whom may we seek for relief, but of thou, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. In the midst of life, we live in death. So the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be discouraged. Remember, mortal, your body's dying. We know how this story ends. Remember what Woody Allen said? He said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> you know, I love it. I don't love Woody Allen. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. So when sin reigns in our mortal body, we obey its lusts, our body's lusts. Okay? Now, that's not a word that we run into often, is it? What are the lusts of our body? Pride? Drugs? Alcohol? Sex? Money? Power? To get off the line at the, at the light before the guy next to you does? I'm just talking about myself here. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, oh, that's a joke. He drives a Prius. <laughs> but what you don't realize about electric cars is off the line, there's nothing quicker. So, no, I can't get up to 60 for three minutes. The lusts of the body. And we all have them. Mothers have a lust for the success and superiority of their children. And it's insatiable. Mothers live through their children. And so you'll see the nastiest things being done by otherwise wonderful mothers. 
when it comes to the success of their children. <laughs> right? I mean, come on, let's be honest here. This is true. And men are a piece of work. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its loss. Now, one word about this word reign. R-E-I-G-N. It's not the same as pitter-patter. All of this language is the language of kingdoms, kings, army, military, reign. Uh, it's, it's, it's kingdom authority military language. Don't let sin reign. So how do you know when sin is reigning over you? Well, another word for that would be bondage. You're just completely under its control. Why would you not let sin reign over you? Well, because when you died in baptism, you're buried, you die to the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of evil, and you're raised to newness of life. You have just transferred your allegiance. Okay? It's very hard for me to preach to you because we have no concepts of allegiance and military and fighting. All of our wars today have no battle lines, and they don't even hardly have uniforms and flags. The porous nature of war. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? And so everybody acts as if they're on the other side and they plant a bomb in a woman and send her into a supermarket, you see? It's just so, so unable to see who you're dealing with today in war. You all understand this. But it depends on the uniform and the flag and the allegiance being clear for you to understand what he's saying here. He's saying, don't let it rain. Why? Because you've been transferred from the forces of darkness and Satan to the forces of Jesus and light. You are done there. You died to that. Now you're living in Jesus Christ. And so don't, don't, don't put on the enemy's clothing. Don't let sin reign over you. Don't make like you're a part of the kingdom of darkness again. You've been transferred. And that's the pressure that we all feel today. All of us want to be Christians, but to have plausible deniability about being Christians. We all want to be saved by Jesus, but to be ashamed of Jesus, both at the same time. We all want to change our vocabulary, our words, our clothing, uh, everything about the way we live in such a way that we fit in better with the forces of darkness while going to church Sunday morning and claiming that we live for Jesus. And the really embarrassing thing is when somebody from church sees us in the week, which is very helpful if you come here from Columbus because then nobody will ever see you in the week. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know that I love reading books about uh, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, sailing vessel books, Navy, Royal Navy books. And... When you're out on the ocean, you can go weeks without seeing another sail. And man, the minute another sail is seen, it's like, sail ahoy! And the whole ship comes up onto the deck, and everybody's eyes are peeled. You send somebody up the mast, what's the first thing they want to do? 
the first thing they want to do is establish the identity of that sailing vessel. Because if that sailing vessel is an enemy, they want to get the advantage of the wind immediately. They want to start sailing in such a way that they'll, that they'll have the advantage, you know. Then the question comes whether they will, wh- whether they will raise the flag, whether, you know, they'll, they'll declare their allegiance. Don't let sin reign over you. Declare your allegiance. Don't let sin reign over you. And listen, if you feel like sin is reigning over you and that you're not declaring your allegiance, isn't the Apostle Paul helpful? Don't let sin reign over you. Oh, okay. Declare your allegiance. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Don't obey its lusts, your body's lusts. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Again, how would he say don't go on doing this if they weren't doing it, you know? Don't go on doing this, right? That must mean the people he's writing to, the Christians in the church in Rome, that must mean that they are going on presenting the members of their body as instruments of unrighteousness. Otherwise, why would he tell them, stop? He says, stop. Why? Because that's who we are. Don't keep doing it. And what's interesting here is he says, presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Any of you studied uh, ancient history, what were the Roman soldiers called? Any of you know? Not Josh Congrove. He can't answer. Anybody know? Oh, come on. Nobody? Nobody? Yes, yes, yes. Hoplites. Why are they called hoplites? Well, because they made a lot of of hoopla. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. They were called hoplites because hoplite was a weapon. And so what you're being told here, it's that word, instruments. Don't keep using your body and its members as weapons of unrighteousness. Why would it say weapons? Why would it have a military image behind it? Because again, the same reason it uses the word reign. This is a war. We have allegiances. Souls are immortal. People die. Souls die. This is serious business. And so don't keep using the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but, the pivot, but, the opposite. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You died, now you're living. You're alive in Christ. You have union with Christ, you're alive. But, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. And so, all this language is military. It's kingdom, it's authority, it's military, it's command, it's death, it's life. You feel this, right? When I went into the ministry, I started being a pastor back in the 1980s, early 80s. What was going on at that time were that all the mainline churches were taking all of 
the imagery and the music of the military out of their hymnals. Some of you are old enough to remember this. And the principal two hymns that every woman, now I'm saying something about women and men here, fasten your safety belt, I'm sorry, but sometimes you just have to recognize that men and women are different. I'm going to do that now, okay? All the women in the PCUSA, my denomination, were absolutely opposed to having any military image in their hymnal. It was just so, so... Uh, I don't know, so, so, I don't know. Yeah, it was macho, it was, it was so, you know. And so the two hymns they took out immediately were what? Battle Hymn of the Republic. There was another one that was even more firm. Onward Christian Soldiers. Oh, that was a nasty hymn. Had to go. You can imagine what they would have done with the Son of Man Goes Forth to War. <laughs> you know? And listen, I like women. I like my daughters. I, I love everybody. But please don't take away the theme of warfare from my life because I recognize it spiritually. And so much of the New Testament is about warfare. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. You know? Controversy. What are our weapons? Our chief weapon is the sword of the Spirit. Why do they have to say sword? It's such a bloody instrument. But that's what the Holy Spirit chose to say. And it's helpful to men. So would you women please trust me when I tell you it's helpful to men. Men always want to die for something, so let them. Okay? <laughs> Don't present your instruments, your weapons, your body, your lust. Don't give yourself to be a weapon of unrighteousness, but give yourself to God. You're alive from the dead. Give your, your members as weapons of righteousness. And so, how easy is it for us to give ourselves to righteousness? Truthfully speaking. You know, truthfully speaking. It's not easy. It's very difficult. But Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. I'm not trying to manipulate you. Jesus died for us. And so what do we owe him? Do we owe him allegiance? You know, one of the reasons I love reading these sailing vessel books is I love to watch the difference between a captain who's adored by his men and a captain who's hated by his men. It's fascinating. 
you would think that people would, on a, on a, on a, on a fighting ship, that the men would choose the captain who avoids conflict. Because that gives them a chance of going home to their wives and children. But that's not how men are wired. Men love their wives and their children. Men mourn the absence of them. Men are actually very tender, but there's something more tender in a man than his desire for his wife and children. Do you know what it is? It's his desire to be faithful. That's something that is even deeper in a man. It's not that we don't love women and children. But when faithfulness means that we will die, that takes precedence over our wives and children. And so you look at the way this passage is written. You look at the military image. And the Apostle Paul was not writing for women. It doesn't mean that women don't have these same battles. But you guys, do you realize that if you stop talking to men, men will stop listening to you? Have you ever? Has that ever occurred to anybody in our world today? I mean, have you ever wondered why all the poor, uneducated white men in this country are killing themselves with alcohol and opioids and just off, offing themselves, you know, in VA hospital parking lots? You realize that there is an epidemic of uneducated, poor white men in this country killing themselves. You realize that uneducated white men in this country, their mortality and morbidity statistics are going down, 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 while Hispanics and blacks are going up, up, up. Did you know that? What's wrong with men in America today? Let me ask you a question. Do you have a place in your heart for poor, uneducated white men? Ask yourself that question. Does the PCA have a place in its heart for them? No. Why? Well, (laughs) come on. Because such men are very fundamental. They're not into nuance. They want to be told where to march and how to die. Do you understand this? And they want to be faithful. That's what motivates those men. And Scripture tells them. They want a pastor who gives them the imperative. That's what they want. The world is filled with men today who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ and who are never given the imperative. And so they live in perpetual angst. They have no idea why they exist. Why am I here? Well, my pastor doesn't tell me. My elders don't tell me. Nobody's disciplining me. And honestly, right about this time, it sounds really good to go on disability and start drinking. And so the world is filled with uneducated white men in this country, who are home on disability. And if you don't believe me, you go home and just Google it on the internet. It's horrendous. And interestingly, it's not happening in Europe. It's unique to this country. And you say, well, what does this have to do with weapons of righteousness? And I say, well, what we have to do is we have to make the conflict clear. We have to clarify the conflict in a day that doesn't like conflict to be clarified. 
We have to say, yeah, I know that you want to do this. I, yeah, I know your parents have told you to do this. Yeah, I know your pastor says it's fine for you to do this. But don't do this because you shouldn't present your members as weapons of unrighteousness, but righteousness because you belong to God, you died, now you've been raised again, you're united with Christ. And so be very clear what's at stake here. And that's the one thing that as a pastor you're never supposed to do today is make anything clear. You know, pastors exist to blur everything, to make it very clear that nothing's clear. <laughs> oh. Listen, there is a war on, and the war will be won by God. The war will be won by Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You best get on the right side. Because one day, he's going to come in power and glory. The trumpets will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. And if you have never bowed the knee to Jesus and you don't pray to God as Father, you are in for a rude awakening. Because the dividing line is clear. You know how Jesus put the dividing line? Jesus said, if any man is ashamed of me and my words, <laughs> this is how Jesus put it, you know, the sweet, sweet baby Jesus. If any man is ashamed, I'm quoting from scripture, if any man is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him before my heavenly father. Now, which side do you want to be on? I mean, honestly. Okay, now you're sitting there saying, well, I want to be on the side of Jesus. I don't want to be ashamed of him and his words, you know. I, I, but I'm going to be, you know. That's how we all think right now. But I know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, it's always the same. I always am ashamed of Jesus and his words, you know. Okay. So, even you women... Here, here's my recommendation. All of us remember how it ends, which is, it says, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, what is that? You're not under law, you're under grace. Now, that's where all that ink is spilled. That's the central argument, because the word law, there in Greek, is nomos. And from it, we get a word that has characterized the church across the centuries. It characterizes the Reformed Church today. It is the, the word antinomus, anti-law. But we say antinomian, antinomus, against the law. And so they say, oh, neato kino. We're not under law. And so it doesn't matter how I feel tomorrow morning when I get up and I'm ashamed of Jesus and his words because that's law. You know? And, and I eat Twinkies. And I'm, I don't need to clarify things. I just need to realize how difficult things are, and I'll be a wounded healer, and I'll talk about my brokenness. Oh, man, go to Paris Island and try it out. <laughs> you know, go to Paris Island and tell them about your brokenness. Guess what? You done be broken? <laughs> They'll break you in a heartbeat. 
No, no, the church is not a bunch of people that walk around trying to get people to feel sorry for them. And the church is also not a bunch of people who are proud. And the church also is not a bunch of people who are self-righteous. No, we understand weakness, don't we? We're not under law, but we are under law. We're not under it condemning us. But we want to be like Jesus. And how are you like Jesus without understanding his character? How do you understand his character without the law? So we're not under law, we're under grace. And that grace gives us back the law in a graceful way, where instead of fearing it, we love it. And you say, I don't love the law. And I say, yeah, neither do I. So love the law, (laughs) you know? I mean, every mother knows how to talk like that. Why can't the Apostle Paul talk like that? You know? One last thing, I'll be done. Um, do, you, do you know what, if you watch movies about war, you read books about war, you study war, one of the things that's interesting is the, uh, the battle cry. You know, Johnny Rebel's battle cry, right? You know the concept that when men go into battle, what do they do? You guys have watched, like, uh, New Zealand's uh, rugby team, right? (laughs) You know? In fact, some of you can probably mimic it. Give me a mimic of it. Come on, somebody can do it. Whoop, whoop! You know, it's just like, whoop, 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 right? And then they whoop up on them. Okay? And this is true across warfare. You have the battle cry. And men do this. Men scream at the top of their lungs as they run to kill or be killed. All right? Everybody will cop that this is true. Now, let me ask you this. Why are the men screaming? I think what most of us think is that they're screaming because they want to intimidate their opponents. Right? Right? That's what we all think. Yeah. You know, strike the fear of God in them. We heard the Johnny Rebel cry. But I don't think that's why they scream. I don't think they're screaming to intimidate their opponents. I think they're screaming to intimidate their own fear. I think it's all about themselves. Because there's not a man there that wants to die and not go home to his wife. I promise you. But men understand that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And I kind of feel that this whole text is the Apostle Paul giving us Johnny Rebel cries. You know, don't do this, do this. They're very simple. There's nothing complicated about this text. Don't, don't use your members as weapons of unrighteousness. Use them as weapons of righteousness. Don't let sin reign over you. These are fundamental, elemental, guttural things that are being said to us. And so all of us need to realize we're in a battle. Your battle is not precious, you know. You're not what my brother David wrote in that book. He said, you know, you that you think, you're the, you think you're the sore thumb in human history. <laughs> you know? 
No, you're not. You're just normal. And so get up and stop moaning. And don't present your members as instruments, as weapons of unrighteousness. Present yourself as, as a weapon of righteousness. Why? Why? Because cheerio, you know, cheerio. We're not under law. We're under grace. Nanny, nanny, poo, poo. I mean, honestly, it's about at that level that the Apostle Paul is speaking to us. It's not, it's not complicated. You're under law or under grace. You're not under law. And so stop whining and be under grace. And you want to know how to be under grace? Study the law. But you're not under it, okay? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, who was a faithful servant. We thank you for this meal that we have to eat together. We thank you, Father, for the hope that we have that one day we will be holy. We pray that you will forgive our sins. We pray that we will be forgiving of others, that we will not be self-righteous, judgmental, but that we will be tender and kind and compassionate because we know ourselves and that we have not deserved any of the good gifts we've, we've received from you, Father. We love you. We love you, and we pray that you will meet us at this table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.